Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm Noelle Ellerson-Ng, AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy, and you're listening to the Pep Talk Podcast, a new way for AASA members to stay engaged with our policy and advocacy work. If it's your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. Here at Pep Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as edu policy. All shows are available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or a guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note at nellerson at aasa.org. Our latest episode, which you'll hear next, features Sunil Mansukani, a principal at the Raven Group, and Philip Tegeler, Executive Director of Poverty and Race Research Action Council, a civil rights policy organization. Sunil Maksukani has over two decades of experience in education and civil rights policy, law, and advocacy from both the nonprofit sector and government. He is a principal at the Raven Group, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs firm where he co-leads the education practice. I've worked with Sunil on a host of issues over the years, and most recently we've been collaborating on a seemingly arcane provision in federal law, a relic of anti-busing policy, and a policy that exists today merely because it hasn't been replaced. Philip Tegler is the Executive Director of Poverty and Race Research Action Council, a civil rights policy organization based in D.C. In 2009, PRRAC, PRAC, helped to found the National Coalition on School Diversity. Philip has written extensively on the application of civil rights law to federal housing and education policy, making him an especially valuable guest for today's episode. Sunil and Philip are going to walk us through what this issue is, what it means to schools, the very fascinating reality behind how and why it persists, and what it is about now that makes it possible to finally make inroads on this policy issue. So Sunil, can you give us the elevator speech on this issue? What is it? Sure. Well, thank you, Noelle and AASA, for inviting us to be on this podcast. This really is an important issue, and we're so glad that AASA is calling attention to it. It actually goes back to the 1970s, where there's been provisions in federal law that prohibit states or school districts from using federal money for busing for school integration purposes. So if a school district wants to voluntarily take steps to get greater racial diversity among their schools, they cannot use federal money to pay for the transportation that would in all likelihood be needed to make that happen. Great. And I just can't help but think about how relevant this conversation is when we think about just how busing has worked itself into the political presidential debates, but we're not going directly to that lane right now. So what I'd like you to do is beyond just framing the elevator speech issue, Sunil, AASA has really appreciated the work of your group and coalition on this topic, and it's actually been a multi-part solution. Fill our listeners in on the progress already made and the work that remains to be done. Sure. Well, what makes this interesting and actually complicated is that there are actually several different places in federal law that contain these anti-busing provisions. So in order to provide school districts with the flexibility to use federal funds to support diversity, each of these provisions need to be removed. And so we started a couple years ago by pointing out to Congress that two of the provisions were contained in federal appropriations laws. And those appropriations laws, that's the process that 
the government used to allocate funding to different federal agencies. Now, as you know, on a conceptual level, both parties would agree that the appropriations process should not be used to make policy, but that's precisely what's been done for over 40 years with respect to these provisions. So they were reauthorized year after year in appropriations laws, and no one said anything about it. And when we raised the issue to, to Congress, you know, just to give an example, one staffer said back to me that these provisions were like barnacles in the appropriations bills. Since they had been there so long, it was going to be really, really hard to remove them. And so, you know, we, we persisted. And when our coalition called attention to these provisions, and why are they still there, you know, in this day and age, no one had a good answer for why they were still there. They are certainly vestiges of a bygone era. Now, it took us a couple of years to get it done, but Congress finally removed these provisions this last fiscal year, fiscal year 2019, when they went ahead and approved the budget for the United States Department of Education. It was certainly the right thing to do, but it was also a victory for local control and autonomy because it removed a federal bar to how school districts can use federal funds. But as I mentioned at the outset, uh, this, this type of provision, these anti-busing provisions, were in different places in federal law. So just because we were able to get it removed from the budget process is not the end of the story. There's a similar provision in the General Education's Provisions Act, which I know is sort of a long, long title, but it's basically the law that governs the Department of Education. And that law, too, has had a long-standing provision going back to the 1970s that prohibits federal money from being used for transportation in support of racial integration. So that's where we are now. We're looking to remove that provision under GEPA as it's known. So these burdensome restrictions on federal funds can be removed once and for all. Okay, so when you start to lay it out like that, I think it becomes, or starts to become more obvious to our members about why we would engage because there's an element to this conversation that is clearly arcane federal policy that is bad and flawed but we can't remove it simply because it's been there for so long. And it was really a little bit of a head scratcher when we first started getting involved. So related to that, something that's really resonated with me about this effort, and you started to hint at this in your previous response, is the apparent disconnect between how easy and obvious the fix seems, yet how much effort it has taken. I remember Hill Snap hiding behind claims of it being too interwoven across policies to be worthwhile which is frustrating when you hear them also say they want to fix it. So break it down for us. In the last three to four years, what were the obstacles? What was the resistance? And what finally gave way to make momentum turn into action? Well, Noel, as, as you know, turning good public policy into law in Washington is not an easy task, regardless of the merits of the issue or the politics behind it. I mean, you just think about it. The process is set up in a way that puts up many roadblocks to any piece of legislation becoming law. You can think about it, whether it's the process by which bills move through the committee, or even just getting floor time in the House or Senate for a vote by the entire body. So that's one issue, is just the way that the, the structure of government is. The second issue, I think, is just the problem of overcoming inertia. Because in many instances, it's easier just to ride out the status quo rather than doing something affirmative. And the affirmative thing in this case is actually removing provisions in federal law. And overcoming inertia is difficult to do both in Congress, and it's also you know, difficult to do to, in life. 
So just to give you an example from the real, real world, I mean, we all know it's good to exercise and important for us, but it's certainly much easier to remain sitting on the couch and watching TV rather than taking the affirmative step and going out to the gym. And so I would say the, the same is true here. As I mentioned, these provisions were in federal law for a really long time. And so one of the other questions we received in response to our request to remove these provisions was, you know, why now? These provisions have been around for decades, so why do we need to address them now? Another one, another question we had was that no one knew what the unintended consequences would be of removing these provisions. So they asked us, what could be the unintended consequences of removing these provisions? And you know, my answer was that, look, the same could be said of any piece of legislation. We just don't know what the unintended consequences could be, but literally anything that was in our, in our minds as, as possibilities just did not seem to be problematic at all. And so neither we nor anyone else was able to come up with a credible scenario about how removing these provisions would lead to a problematic outcome. And so we kept plugging away at it. I, I don't think there was any single aha moment that made, made any difference uh, for us, but rather is continuing to ask questions of those in power about why this federal law is still in place when you could remove it at no cost to the federal government. We often hear in Congress that, no, we can't do X or Y because it'll cost so much. Well, here the cost of doing it is zero. And so that argument went away too. And we also noted that removing this provision would be in keeping with the spirit of the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is the main federal law governing education and was passed in 2015. That act, as I think many of your members know, sought to provide greater state and local control. And certainly by removing these anti-busing provisions, Congress would be providing school districts with greater flexibility on how they could use federal funds which is something I think that we all agree on in this instance. We structured these questions this way to really warm up our listeners to what is a complex issue, even though it's so seemingly obvious. So we started with the elevator speech. We went to a little bit of a dissection of the multi-part solution, and then we got into the really tangly part of how something so obvious could seem so complicated. And this is where we want to really start asking Philip some questions. So Philip, Having set the stage for all the drama and action here on Capitol Hill, I think it's actually even more helpful to have an understanding of the research behind it. So much like the policy, I guess the research has evolved. What do our listeners need to know? Oh, uh, well, th thanks, Noelle. Um, I think when we're talking about uh, research on school integration policy, I'm really thinking about uh, three kinds of research that, that fed into our work on this, uh, on this bill and, the, and this advocacy campaign. Um, the first is the historical research. You know, where did these provisions come from? What was the historical setting uh, at the time? And, you know, as you, as, as came out in the presidential debate recently, this came out of a period when forced, so-called forced busing, you know, federally mandated busing in response to uh, findings of, of intentional school segregation uh, were taking place all around the country. Uh, Boston was one of uh, the, the, the big uh, flashpoints for this controversy, also Los Angeles, and Wilmington, Delaware, uh, where uh, Senator Biden was elected senator. And uh, it was the idea that there would be the use of federal funds to pay for the use of school buses to bring kids across segregated neighborhoods to, to go to each other's schools. 
that was you know, viewed as a problem by people who were opposed to busing remedies at that time. And this provision that we're trying to eliminate now uh, was one of a whole series of anti-busing um, amendments that, that were being passed or proposed during that time period in the 70s. And for some reason, this one was passed and has never been removed. We're obviously at a very different historical place now where much of the action in school integration is locally grown, um, either at the state or local level, uh, where people are stepping up and, and doing uh, voluntary plans and they need to use federal money for, for school buses. A very different setting now, but it's important to understand that, that history. The second kind of research is the general research on the benefits of school integration. You know, when we talk about school integration today, we're talking about both racial and economic integration. We have a pattern in this country since the height of court-ordered school integration, where we've seen schools get more and more segregated in this country to the point now where we're as segregated as we were at the start of the whole school integration movement uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's a, a kind of double segregation we're facing now uh, by both race and poverty. We have a policy in many states, unspoken policy perhaps, um, where um, many uh, low-income kids of color are being educated in separate schools. And today that's really uh, one of the major uh, educational problems we face uh, is, is this um, idea of, of separate and unequal schools for, for low-income kids. The research that has come out on the benefits of integration um, in the last 20 years is, is, is just stronger and stronger every year. And, you know, I, I don't have time to go into the vast research on the benefits of integration, but, you know, we know, we know finally today that uh, kids who, who attend integrated schools, both racially and economically integrated schools, have higher achievement in math, science, language, and reading, uh, better long-term outcomes in terms of high school graduation, college attendance. They tend to have more qualified uh, teachers, better school climate, and probably most importantly, there's an increase that's been documented in cross-racial trust and friendships, a breakdown in the perpetuation of uh, prejudice, uh, stereotypes, and fears of people from other uh, racial groups. Uh, these are some of the most important benefits uh, of all uh, for uh, a country that's becoming more and more uh, polarized. A lot of the research I'm describing is collected on the National Coalition on, on School Diversity website. That's www.school-diversity.org. If you look under research briefs, you'll see several that summarize uh, the latest research and findings on school integration. The other thing I want to mention really is the research on transportation, which is at the heart of this law. It, there's been a lot of uh, analysis done of different kinds of school choice plans, including plans that involve magnet schools and other types of integration programs. Uh, the fact is school choice programs that don't really have an integration plan or component in them have a tendency to uh, make things more segregated because the kids who really need to have choice and, and take advantage of choice to attend higher performing, less segregated schools often do not have transportation available to them. So if you take transportation off the table and don't provide funding for it for the purposes of integration, you end up having school choice systems that make things worse. Transportation is a key part 
of, of integration um, in any effective uh, uh, integration plan. Okay, so when you, when you tee it up like that, I actually have a couple of questions that jump to mind. So there's the next one in the script that we talked about ahead of time, but I want to deviate from that a little bit. So I want to touch on the prevalence of school busing and integration in headlines lately, and this is spurred by recent debates with presidential candidates. Can you help our listeners understand how that issue is both separate from, but also related to the specifics of what we're talking about today? And I don't know if that's a Sunil or a Philip question. And then as you think about that answer, my next question after that is about implementation for schools when there's a fix. So if you will parse out between the two of that, but if you could help our members and listeners understand where the overlap exists between this advocacy issue that we're engaged on and the version of this headline that's playing out right now. The headlines that are playing out right now are in partly, in part they're relitigating um, controversies that took place decades ago. Senator Harris made a point of saying that, you know, it was important for the federal courts to intervene to address school segregation uh, in, in the 60s and 70s and 80s because um, that was a way of achieving equal educational opportunity. And we had a policy in many parts of this country of, of uh, separating kids by race and that needed to be addressed. And school busing was only one of the techniques used to help address segregation. When you look at the field today, we have school busing taking place in a wide variety of uh, contexts. You know, more than 90% of school busing in the country has nothing to do with integration per se. It's just a bus is taking kids to school. Uh, almost every school district uses busing, except the very small ones. You know, of the districts that are using school buses to uh, help to promote racial and economic integration, there are still some districts that are uh, operating under desegregation orders, in this, especially in the South, and the ones that are still in operation are doing a good job in helping promote academic achievement, um, cross-racial understanding, and, and integration. And I think a lot of those plans have a lot of support in their local communities. So you could say that there's still some court-ordered busing out there, but it's not really particularly controversial anymore where it exists. And then you have a lot of places that are doing it voluntarily. But they're saying, we need to come up with ways of getting out of this pattern of segregated neighborhoods and segregated schools. We have to uh, develop our school attendance zones and our transportation patterns in a way that brings kids together across racial and class lines. You know, and that's becoming increasingly prevalent. And the issue here is, where's the funding to do that? Obviously, most transportation funding is from local sources. Cities and school districts that are getting federal funds because they have a high poverty population um, should also have the option of using some of those funds to transport students. And that's what this bill is about. And that's what this provision in the, in the general education laws uh, prohibits across the board. It doesn't say uh, we're only going to prohibit court ordered busing or for, for integration. It says we're going to pro prohibit any use of federal funds uh, for student transportation uh, for integration, whether it's voluntary or not. I hope that provides a little more context on where this fits in in the overall, you know, student transportation uh, universe. 
It, it does. It absolutely does. And that's why I asked that question. And it's, it's helpful. We want our listeners to understand where what we talk about on the podcast may overlap with current headlines. So this isn't a podcast that's done every week or every day. and It's trying to be current on events. It just so happens that we tease this up and then the presidential debate lend itself to a little bit of overlap. But the big question I always wanted to ask is, so what does this mean for superintendents going forward? For a listener tuning in right now, what are the examples that can help bring this life? I know that you, Philip, been advocating on this for a while. Can you share the specifics of a few direct examples of this in schools and communities? And, and as a tangent to that, what are some of the takeaways, the obstacles and opportunities to really getting this to work outside of the obvious one of the prohibition on federal funding? I think from a superintendent's perspective, you know, if you're lucky enough to uh, be the superintendent of a district that has true racial inte uh, integration on a residential basis, you don't really have to worry too much. Most of our, you know, metro areas, uh, especially in the uh, East Coast and, and, and uh, middle, Midwest are extremely segregated residentially. And it's, it's difficult to have integrated schools without some kind of student transportation. And, you know, I, I think that uh, educational professionals recognize this, and it's really just a question of uh, oftentimes political will, you know, is, is, is your community ready to um, step up and, uh, and do what it takes to promote school integration? Uh, what kind of techniques are you going to use? And no matter what you do, I think uh, student transportation has got to be part of the solution. You know, I'm very familiar with, um, I mean, I've been to a lot of places that have good school integration programs up and running. I'm, I'm most familiar with the Hartford region up in Connecticut, where there is a two-way uh, school integration uh, project going uh, between the city of Hartford and about 30 suburban school districts. It's a two-way system. You have children from Hartford, which is about a 95% African-American and Latino student uh, population, you have those kids who are several thousand every year uh, taking buses out to uh, predominantly white, low poverty suburban school districts. And you have kids from the suburbs taking buses in uh, to um, the city and the first ring suburbs to a series of 40 magnet schools, which are uh, you know, set up to basically address the high rates of racial and economic segregation in the Hartford schools. So you have kids from Hartford going to school side by side with kids from the suburbs, and it's supported by a regional student transportation system. It's a key part of that remedy to have um, that taking place. And it's, it's really a beautiful system they have in place. I mean, they've a lot of growing pains as in any of these programs, but it's um, quite impressive to see. And it's also, for, for me, I, I'm particularly interested to see how many uh, suburban uh, middle-class and white families from, uh, sign up for the uh, magnet schools every year. And, and uh, you know, there's this waiting list of suburban kids. It's, it's, and it's not easy to get into these schools, but you have kids basically taking bus rides from suburban school districts into the magnet schools where uh, they're essentially a, a minority of, of kids in the school. Maybe there's Maybe you have a school that's uh, uh, 25 or 30 percent white enrollment, but it's seen regionally as a very high-performing school, 
often with a specialized uh, theme that attracts kids from all over the region. And, and similarly, you know, with the uh, other side of the two-way program, where kids are taking buses out to the suburban district from Hartford, you know, some of those suburban districts are doing a really great job in including these kids as part of their community and taking ownership of these kids all the way from kindergarten through um, high school graduation. You know, once you're a first grader who goes out to a suburban district from Hartford, that suburban district is your district and you are allowed to stay there through, through high school. And that obviously, you know, for, for a lot of these kids, there's not a reliable source of transportation in their families. There's not reliable access to a car. Many families in Hartford don't even have a car. Um, so you absolutely need the student transportation to make a program like that work. So I just listened to that, and I'm not an administrator. I'm thinking about our members, and I, those that work is intense, and those conversations are intense. But when I think about what we focus on at ASA and what this podcast focuses on, it's the policy fix. So to date, really, when we think about AASA's engagement around this issue, it's really been mostly handled at a staff level. So I'd be interested in both you, Philip, and Sunil talking to, is it worthwhile for superintendents and education leaders and anyone interested in ensuring that districts and states, when they want to, can use federal dollars to help address immigration? Is it worth them talking with their member of Congress about this? I mean, we talked about how it's a barnacle of an issue, so woven into appropriation. Is it something where constituent advocacy makes a difference? Sure, ab absolutely. I think that's, that will be the case in, in any policy question. Um, you know, congressmen want to know, what do my constituents think about this? And, you know, if I'm not hearing anything about it, and, you know, Noel is, is uh, as influential as you are, you know, if it's just an, a, a trade association asking for a change, I think it makes it so much more effective if people from the trade association, the members themselves, the ones who are affected, are the ones coming along and saying, yeah, we need that change. And I think for, for your membership, it really does boil down to, to flexibility. This uh, school integration is one of the few strategies that have been found to decrease the black-white achievement gap. You know, over the years, the government has tried numerous sorts of strategies, everything from reducing class sizes to, to a whole range of other steps. But at the end of the day, there's very few that actually work, and school integration is, is one of them. So much so, in fact, that uh, New York State, when they were doing their ESSA plan, as it's known, when they were talking about, you know, how are we going to improve our schools, the ones that don't, are not doing that well, our, our Title I schools that are not performing well, one of the items that they specifically put in there was racial integration as a school improvement strategy. And so they certainly recognize the importance of it. And so what we are hoping for is that uh, by removing this provision, it will take the weight off, if you will, of superintendents who might be wanting to do something in this area, but don't quite know what steps to take or are afraid of what obstacles there might be. And so our job at this moment is to at least remove one of those obstacles while at the same time calling attention to the larger issue so that people know just what a difference a really good integration plan could do for student achievement. So as you just gave that answer, I totally started picturing in my mind, isn't there a nursery rhyme or a folk tale of the little boy who cried wolf, right? And he's like putting his finger in the dam to plug the hole. I mean, this is one seemingly small fix, but it could open up a possibility of flexibility to really make some meaningful change as it relates to 
being able to use federal dollars to support busing to ultimately address integration, is that a proper way to kind of capture what a small change could result in? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I want to emphasize one thing, and that is this is all voluntary. No one's forcing the school district to do anything. So if in the superintendent and school board's best judgment that some sort of integration plan could actually make a difference, and there's plenty of research, as Phil has indicated, to support that, they should have the support of the federal government, uh, among others, and, and to, to, to do that. And so, um, you know, that's what we're trying to do here is to change the federal government from an obstacle to a, to a supporter. So that actually warrants a further clarification. To the extent that there is continued resistance at the federal level, is there anyone on Capitol Hill who's saying that they don't think that states and locals should be able to use the federal dollars? Or is it purely that it's just a barnacle or it's a far-reaching policy that has tentacles that are just hard to unlatch? I mean, is there some opposition to the idea of federal dollars being used for busing? If there is opposition, we haven't heard it. And, you know, we have made every effort to speak to both sides of the aisle as well as uh, to the the folks on the committees who are most involved in this. And we certainly haven't heard that uh, as being a stated reason for, for keeping this in there. Great. That's exactly the answer I wanted to hear. So thanks, Sunil. I like when people tell me what I want to hear. But that's also <laughs> very, very helpful, right? That's very helpful to our listeners and to school administrators and other school leaders and school community stakeholders who want to think about a different way to take a bite at this apple. And it could be that now maybe there's a lane or an avenue in which they can engage with a specific ask that feels manageable, that is manageable, that is accomplishable, that can have meaningful impact. So I've reached the end of the questions that I have, both scripted and unscripted. Thank you both, Philip and Sunil, for your patience with my unscripted question. But is there anything else we need to talk about? Do you have anything else you want to add to our dialogue today for the listeners to hear before we wrap up? Well, I would say that if, if uh, superintendents are using this opportunity to reach out to their elected representatives, on the issue of school integration and how important it is uh, to them professionally. It would also be good to mention the Strength and Diversity Act, oh, okay. which is a, uh, a bill that's pending right now to fund a competitive grants program for school district planning to promote school integration. Uh, it would be a program which is, would be available to your members uh, if it passed Congress. Now, it's less likely to pass in this Congress uh, as a bipartisan bill, but it's, it's worth mentioning um, when folks go to speak to their representatives. It's kind of a package, both, both bills, and Sunil can fill you in a little more on that if, if, if that would be helpful. But as long as you're calling, I think it's good to raise both issues. You know what might be most advantageous, actually? When we publish this podcast, Sunil and Philip, maybe I'll coordinate with you offline, and we can get a quick little blog post to talk about the specific legislation where we could include both the asks for that bill, but also this specific fix. Uh, that way they have the one-two punch of listening to this episode, but also seeing in front of them what, what the background is and what the advocacy ask would be. That would be terrific. And you know, just to, to close on my end for, for your for your audience, uh, as Phil has indicated, uh, there are numerous successful examples of school districts successfully trying to promote diversity. And um, so, for for those of you listening out there who want to know how to get started, 
you're not starting from scratch. And certainly the legislation Phil just mentioned would help in terms of funding and you know providing additional models, but some of those models are there today. For those of you who are interested in learning more just about you know the state of integration today, the National Coalition on School Diversity uh, has just in the last few weeks published a state of integration report that is on the National Coalition on School Diversity's website, which uh, I urge all of you to, to take a take a look at, and that'll tell you where we are, you know, both challenges and opportunities uh, today. And you know, you need to know where we are today in order to move forward. Philip and Sunil, thank you for taking the time to be with us today and for those closing comments. We are just about out of time, but here at AASA, we're thankful to know and work with you and to have you among our allies and pushing for this obvious policy win. Thank you for being with us today, taking the time to share your expertise and insights and helping our listeners understand exactly what this policy is, to break down why it continues to persist and to paint such a clear pathway towards a better, more equitable solution that empowers state and local leadership on the important issue of integration. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We hope you found this conversation helpful and worth your time. We look forward to chatting with you in the future. Philip and Sunil, thank you. And that concludes today's episode.